market saturation, mind mapping, miracle mornings, and more. It's time for another round of 20 questions with Nick. What's up? What's up? Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show because building an income stream you have control over is the fast track to financial independence. It's time for another edition of 20 Questions with Nick, diving into the listener mailbag from the last few months to pull out a few questions I thought would be interesting and hopefully beneficial to try and answer on air. This is the ninth episode in this series, so you'll find links to all the resources mentioned over at sidehustlenation.com slash Q&A9. And if you like this format, you'll find all the previous episodes done in this style over there as well. Question number one comes from Nat, who asks, I'm curious to know how do you monetize your blog? I've tried Google AdSense, but that is terrible because it drives traffic away from my website. So Nat, great question there. You're not going to find display ads like Google AdSense on Side Hustle Nation, but the site still brings in five figures in monthly revenue. And in my case, the bulk of that these days is coming from affiliate marketing, which is probably worth defining affiliate marketing, meaning pointing your audience to the products or services you think would be most helpful or relevant to them and earning a commission for doing so. But there are lots of ways to monetize a blog. I've got a video that walks you through some of the most popular ways over at blogstartercourse.com. For example, you could sell your own products, you could sell your own services, you could sell sponsored posts, you could sell a membership, lots of different ways to get it done. And in a sense, affiliate marketing has some of the same drawbacks that AdSense does in that it sends people off your site. So you have to make a call as to what's your goal. Do you want somebody to join your email list, to book a call with you, schedule an appointment, right? Do you want them to buy your product? But still, there are entire sites, entire businesses built solely from a monetization standpoint anyway, to earn that ad revenue. It's a very viable model. And someone worth following in that space is John Dykstra from fatstacksblog.com. He's got some great stuff. He's got an interesting and a worthwhile email newsletter. It's one of the few that I still open almost every time. Question number two comes from James. He says, nowadays, since the market is so saturated, can you really start an online business and earn a decent side income? So James, I think that is a great question. And tactics, of course, will change over time. But the broader strategies of helping people and solving real problems, those never really go away. And the exciting thing is there are always new opportunities opening up. We see this in action, even in some recent episodes of the show. Check out Saw L in episode 359. He started Simply Insurance just a couple years ago. And when we recorded, he was bringing in 13 to 15 grand in revenue a month. Super competitive space, right? Super saturated, but he found a way in and is making that work. In the personal finance space, there's a site called Dollar Sprout, which I want to say started in 2017 and is now one of the dominant players in the niche. They're on pace to do over $2 million this year. So yes, the online space is more crowded than it ever has been, but there are also more people turning online for answers to their questions than ever before. Just as a personal example, there were plenty of other entrepreneur interview shows when I started this podcast in 2013, and it would have been really easy to say, nah, it's too competitive, or nah, you know, it's already been done. And I'm reminded of a quote from Jonathan Mendonca from Choose FI on the show a couple years ago, where he said, if you can't be first, be different. 
Is it easy to build an online business today? Of course not, but it is achievable. And I see lots of people getting after it. It's kind of like the old adage of when's the best time to plant a tree? Well, 30 years ago, but a year from now, you're going to wish you started today. You're going to wish you planted it today. Question three is from Valerie. She says, I've already paid for hosting. I've got a domain, but I'm struggling with conceptualizing and categorizing the things I want to write about. Can you help me out? All right. So Valerie, on the blog front, one thing that you might find helpful is to organize some kind of mind map, especially when you're just starting out, where you brain dump all your ideas and you kind of categorize them. There are some online tools to do that. MindMup, M-U-P, is uh, one that turned up in a search for free online mind map. Or you could just do it with pen and paper or a stack of post-it notes. For me, I do this in a couple ways. If I'm out and about, I'm going to put new ideas down in the notes app on my phone. And if I'm by my desk, I'll just add it to a master Google Doc I have called Article Ideas. I know, super original, right? From there, I dump those keywords into Ahrefs to see the approximate search volume and competitiveness, which just helps me prioritize which topics to tackle, right? All else being equal, I'm going to go after the lower competitive terms that have higher search volume. But after that, then I start building my outlines of what I want to make sure to include in each article. And then more recently, I'm trying to find audience members or colleagues to connect with for references or quotes or stories to help build out that content. And I want to note too, that the categories on your site, even the content on your site, those don't have to be set in stone from the get-go. The categories on Side Hustle Nation have certainly evolved over time as my interests have changed and as the interests of readers have changed. In my case, the broad topic, the theme of the site is making extra money. So I have categories like freelancing, online business, e-commerce, and investing. If you have a site about skiing, you might have categories like gear reviews, ski travel, skiing skills, something like that. But in general, if you have three to six high-level categories, I think you're going to be in good shape in terms of site architecture, and then you can start to brainstorm the type of content that would go under each of those. Question four is from Anne. She says, I'm very good at using websites like Zazzle, Snapfish, and Shutterfly to make personalized calendars, Christmas cards, and party and wedding invitations. Do you think there's a market for me to do this for other people as a side hustle? And if so, how would I get started? So Anne, I like this one. As someone who has struggled to make photo books and other products on these sites, that's definitely a good skill to have. In fact, I know some wedding photographers that offer a photo book either as part of their package or as an upsell. So it might be worth the conversation to ask how they get those done, if it takes a ton of time, if that's a pain point for them, right? I've seen other services where for every 100 Instagram photos or something like that, they'll automatically print and ship you a little photo book. But targeting a broad consumer market is pretty tough. So I'd first look at that partnership angle for a potential done for you or done with you type of service. Like, could you find a local photographer or several local photographers and offer this as an add-on service to their client base? Maybe it's even behind the scenes where to the end customer, you're kind of invisible. They're just, it's an add-on service from the photographer. Because even though the Zazzle and Shutterfly like interfaces, they get easier over time. The DIY route is hard. You think I'm saving money, but like when you calculate your time, man, I spent four hours putting this thing together. Like, hey, 
you know, after they've done it once, maybe that makes sense to hire that out a second time. And it's kind of funny. This is actually really similar to a business idea Bryn and I kicked around over here for a while, a few years ago. She had made these really cool personalized ABC books for some friends' kids using mainly Instagram pictures, but we never made it a priority to go out and try and validate it and market that to, to a broader audience. But I like this one. I think there's something there. Question five comes from Julia. She says, do you have any tips for developing a routine to wake up earlier? I want to start waking up an hour earlier and have time to uh, work on my side hustle. So this was actually a question from the Facebook group, sidehustlenation.com FB. We'll get you over there if you're not a member already. This is a good question and prompted some good discussion in, in that thread. So getting up early was actually one of the leading responses when I asked Side Hustle Nation this year, what's the one habit you feel contributes most to your success? The others that made the top five were getting physical activity, learning new things, having clearly defined goals, and creating what several members called an external brain, meaning you have some sort of system to store and keep track of your tasks and ideas so they don't clutter up your mental RAM. But back to getting up early, this was like the number one response. What's the one habit you feel contributes most to your success? And the idea behind this is to create some space in your day where previously none might exist and doing it first thing rather than waiting until late at night when you're potentially drained of willpower and energy. Because if you don't create that space, no one else is going to do it for you. So I think this goal of getting up early is a really powerful one. And up until this year, I've never been an early riser, but for the last several months, especially now that our sons have a, a semi-consistent wake-up time, I've been getting up around 5.30, doing a quick workout and shower, and just generally getting a proactive start on the day. I've actually started waking up without an alarm at that time, which I think just must mean I'm officially getting old, but it seriously feels great. The biggest tip I can share that'll make this easier is going to bed earlier. It's still going to be tough for the first week or two and probably harder in the winter when it's like dark out, when it's so much easier to stay warm and bundled up in bed. But after that, especially if you start to see and feel some positive benefits from doing it, it's going to become natural. And what I've noticed on the other end is it's meant not working late into the evenings. We're usually heading to bed around 9.30 these days, maybe doing a little reading and that's it. That's probably an hour earlier than before this little schedule shift. Among the other suggestions from the Facebook group were uh, using the Sleep Cycle app, which theoretically gently wakes you up during a period of lighter sleep, to do it in increments, like set your alarm 10 minutes earlier each day until you reach your desired time. I actually did the opposite in high school, where I'd set my alarm a minute later every week and try and sleep longer and, and just be more efficient in getting out the door in the mornings. Another suggestion was to put the alarm clock across the room so you have to get up, physically get up to shut it off. It's not going to win a lot of friends with your spouse or partner if they're not on board with your new wake-up plan. And the final suggestion was just do it. It kind of reminds me of Jocko Willink's answer to how to be more disciplined. Just be more disciplined. Did you know that roughly half of Side Hustle Nation hasn't started their side hustle yet? If that's you, I get it. Starting and building a business is tough. It takes more than just an idea. There are tons of moving parts, and it's a bit like trying to assemble your airplane in the middle of takeoff. Thankfully, our sponsor, Taylor Brands, is helping Side Hustle Show listeners make that leap and make it all a lot easier. Their comprehensive platform guides you through every step, making sure you have everything you need, 
all in one place. Think of it like your behind-the-scenes partner for things like LLC formation, licenses and permits, getting an EIN, setting up your business bank account, bookkeeping and invoicing, insurance, logos, trademark protection, and a lot more. Taylor Brands helps you handle it all seamlessly. And to get you started, Side Hustle Show listeners get 35% off Taylor Brands LLC formation plans when you use our link. That's taylorbrands.com slash side hustle. Taylor Brands, like a tailor for your clothes, T-A-I-L-O-R-B-R-A. ANDS.com slash side hustle. Start your business journey today with the help of Taylor Brands. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over 3.5 million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Question six comes from Joe. He says, I signed up through your website for Bluehost to start my blog about personal finance through the eyes of an educator. What I was not ready for was for them to build the site for me for around $2,000. I really know just about nothing about site building, affiliate marketing, plugins, marketing the site, or anything to make the site run smoothly and make a few bucks while doing it. Do you think it would be worth it to have them build and market it? I know I have my ideas on what I want to blog about, but I'm thinking if this gets me from A to B a lot sooner, with a lot of growing pains, maybe that's worth it. What do you think? So first of all, Joe, thank you for supporting the site by signing up through my affiliate link. But second of all, that deal would be a hard pass. I think you're going to find far more affordable web help on platforms like Fiverr or in groups like Side Hustle Nation. That's sidehustlenation.com slash FB. Again, the thing is you just want to be super clear about what you're looking for. So what I would do is find a theme that you like, and then work to customize it until you're happy with it. There are thousands of great-looking, mobile-responsive, free themes. Side Hustle Nation, for the sake of reference, runs on a theme called Generate Press, which I think is like 40 bucks a year. And on top of that, I layer a service or a software called Beaver Builder, which allows more kind of drag-and-drop, or what you see is what you get editing. The basic rule, though, would be to start with a bare-bones foundation you can live with, and one that won't immediately make readers' eyes bleed, design-wise, and then add expense and complexity only as the revenue justifies it. Now, sometimes you're going to have to spend money to make money, right? But early on, I would love to see you bootstrap this thing and learn as you go, rather than dumping a couple grand on development. The investment in your own education you make up front, and by investment, I mean just taking the time to learn the inner workings of WordPress yourself, just enough to be dangerous. I'm not talking about becoming a software engineer that's going to make you so much more self-reliant down the road because you don't want to have to be in the position of 
writing another check for every little tweak or update that you want done. But I'm curious what you guys think about this. Am I off base? When does it make sense to make an upfront investment like that? Let me know what you think. Tweet me up at nloper or uh, in the comments for this episode at sidehustlenation.com slash Q&A9. Question seven is from Chad, who asks, my idea is to start off with a blog to create learning content and hopefully accumulate a following. Once the following is growing, I'd work to monetize the actual site with ads and affiliate links, then eventually add products to sell with the end goal of making it an e-commerce site. The question is, do you think I should just go straight to the structure of an e-commerce store, either through private labeling, wholesale, or dropshipping the products I eventually want to sell? Do you know of any business that started primarily as an informative blog and is now an e-commerce site? So I like this question, Chad. A couple examples come to mind. The biggest is probably Bulletproof, started as a blog by Dave Asprey as Bulletproof Executive or Bulletproof Exec. And that's turned into a huge e-commerce and non-e-commerce empire. I see their coffee at Whole Foods now. The second example is by a couple friends of mine, a bar above. Com. This started out as a content site for bartenders and cocktail enthusiasts, and now they sell a crap ton of bar equipment on Amazon and through their own website. The benefit of the content-first approach is, when done right, you have an engaged audience to validate and sell products to when you eventually create them or source them. The downside is it's a much longer road. I mean, we've seen people go, go straight to private labeling you know, lean on Amazon's traffic and just skip that whole audience building step entirely. Like, look, the audience is already over there on Amazon. Like, why don't I just go straight to that step? But of course, that's more fragile as well, right? You're building on somebody else's platform. Well, the other example is travelfashiongirl.com. As I understand it, she was selling a ton of these packing cubes as an affiliate, as one product example. So it was something she knew her audience was into before ultimately creating her own line of products as an e-commerce seller. But keep me posted on this one. I'm excited to see what you come up with. Question eight comes from Noah. He says, I appreciate your emails and I actually tried out advertising on Craigslist for power washing and was successful in receiving apply. However, I was just starting a full-time job and had to politely tell a potential customer that no, I wasn't going to be able to help him. So my question is, how do I create a side income that may turn into a larger income without losing my main source of income, meaning the full-time job takes so much energy and resources that it becomes impossible to do both. First off, Noah, way to take action. That is awesome. And this is a good question. And maybe there's a balancing act, especially in this transition phase. A lot of times what I see is people building a business to a certain point, maybe to cover their monthly expenses all on the side, and then making the leap to running it full-time. That's especially true on the service side, since it can be harder to scale, though you can always hire help. In this example, I'm confident you can find a reliable pressure washer to go fulfill these gigs for you if you ended up getting a steady stream of them. Or maybe it's something you could go do yourself on the weekend if if you have time. For me, I tried to bake some time leverage into the business from the beginning, and this was an affiliate site in the footwear niche. That's my origin story. As long as the servers were running and all the technology was cooperating, I could go to work all day and still make money from the side hustle. Now still, it did get to the point where it was almost like having two full-time jobs and that's when it was time to make the leap because I saw a much greater upside from the side hustle. 
Question nine comes from Ella. Ella says, I just started ninth grade. I'm 14 and I'm ready to get started with a hustle that will get me max profit. What are your suggestions for junior hustlers? What have other teens done to make money in my situation? I feel like this is the right time to get the ball rolling for future expenses like a car here soon and college in four years. I look forward to hearing your suggestions and ideas. Thank you, Ella. You've got an excellent head on your shoulders to be thinking about this stuff. When I was 14, it was a lot of babysitting and cutting grass. I also took some Costco candy to a summer camp to sell to my fellow Boy Scouts. In the winter, I taught skiing, but that was not a paid gig. It was just all I got was a free season's pass, which looking back was probably not a great hourly rate. But if you Google best side hustles for kids, there's an article of mine that will pop up with lots of ideas. Among those that might be interesting to you are tutoring, private sports coaching, the babysitting that I mentioned, shoveling snow, depending on where you live, yard work, dog walking, dog poop pickup even, and lots more. That's, yeah, Google side hustles for kids or best side hustles for kids, and that article should pop up. But I love that you're thinking about this stuff and curious to hear uh, which direction you end up going. Question 10 is from Eric. He says, I'm working as a field service mechanic. I'm getting paid around $35 an hour plus good benefits, but it's still not enough to get by living in the San Francisco Bay Area. And it turns out my company is charging our customer around $170 an hour for every time we do our repairs. I've got a lot of customers asking me if I can do the job on the side instead, and they'll just pay me cash so they can save on labor costs. I told them that even though it's tempting, I can't do it because number one, it's not ethical, and number two, it's a conflict of interest with my current job. My dilemma is, should I start my own business and compete with my current employer? Is it ethical to, quote, steal our current customers and service them myself? Also, if I do set up my own business, I'm still going to end up getting some parts from my company as they're the ones that manufactures these machines. Hope you can share your insights on this. So Eric, this is a tough one. I I think you're right that it is a big conflict of interest to straight up poach your existing clients and undercut your company. But at the same time, even if you charged triple your current rate, that would still be a big win for both parties. So I, I know how frustrating that is. And if nothing else, maybe that gives you some salary negotiation leverage. If you were to set up a separate company for these side jobs, I think you totally could and just market yourself through other channels. Like this is actually really common, like auto technicians working on cars for friends in their garage. But I would steer clear of doing work for your existing customers because that just seems like a recipe to get you in trouble. Also, I'd want to check the letter of your unemployment agreement, if you have one, just to make sure there's nothing in there about starting a competing service. And since you'll still be relying on your company for parts, you may need to explain upfront what your plans are. And my guess is you won't be the first to have that idea. So they may already have a process in place and be totally cool with it. Like they don't own you 24 hours a day. So what you do in your spare time, as long as it doesn't negatively impact their business, shouldn't be an issue. But tread carefully because this is a tricky one and I wouldn't want you getting in trouble and jeopardizing your current income stream. So what do you think? Question 11 is from Stephen from Papua New Guinea. He says, I'm working on producing eco-friendly products to sell offline and online, but haven't started yet. To sell my eco-friendly products online, what steps do you think I should take when creating my business blog or website? So Stephen, before you do either, I'd ask you to consider the competitive landscape. What makes your stuff different or better than what's already out there? Like what type 
of eco-friendly products are you thinking of selling? How are you going to reach customers? Are you going to sell through your own website? Are you going to sell through Amazon, through Etsy? Will you be shipping the products from your home, from a warehouse? With a physical product business, I would try and validate it with real orders through some of these other marketplaces before going through the time and expense of setting up your own shop. Once you have some proven demand, then I'd go out and build your own Shopify store. Question 12 comes from Paul. He says, I've bought thousands of dollars worth of guru courses, listened to hundreds of hours on YouTube, podcasts, and websites, including yours. And this is the only true pattern I've seen work. He calls it M-D-A-A-R. That acronym stands for mentor. Do what the mentor says. Analyze your results. Adjust course as necessary. And repeat until you have achieved your goal. That's M-D-A-A-R. Mentor. Do what the mentor says. Analyze your results. Adjust course as necessary. And repeat until you've achieved your goal. Paul's question is, do you have any specific piece of writing or video of any kind that really helped you personally. I feel like consistency or persistence is the biggest factor. So Paul, I love this M-D-A-A-R acronym or formula. And and you're right, persistence is key. I'm trying to think of a specific piece of writing or video. I feel like individual pieces of content are fantastic for picking out concrete tactics or ideas to try, while the overall practice of continually studying your craft contributes to growing your overall understanding and kind of body of knowledge or, you know, foundation to stand on. Like I just read Expert Secrets by Russell Brunson, amazing book on sales psychology with tons of concrete examples you can go out and apply. Since I was working on my course launch, that was an example of just-in-time learning for me. As far as other pieces of content that have really helped me personally, I really liked The Go-Giver by Bob Berg about being helpful first. I really liked Rich Dad, Poor Dad about buying or building assets to achieve early financial independence. There's a TED Talk from Peter Diamandis that's a fave of mine. It's called Why Abundance is Our Future. And it's his argument for optimism in spite of all the negativity and all the bad news that surrounds us. And of course, I'll link those up for you at sidehustlenation.com slash Q&A9. But let me flip that question around for you. Do you have a specific piece of writing or video or podcast episode that really helped you personally? Let me know. I'm at Ann Loper on Twitter and Instagram. You can pause the episode and do it right now. Otherwise, let's keep on rolling. Question 13 is from Riley, who says, I understand from some of your podcasts that personal branding is very important and can help establish yourself as an authority. But at the same time, I generally prefer to keep my work and personal life a bit more compartmentalized. And I'd like to potentially grow my side hustle into a small team down the road, which makes me lean a little bit more towards creating a separate brand or agency. In your experience, is one of the approaches generally better than the other for this type of side hustle? Am I doing myself a disservice in any way by creating an agency as opposed to operating under my personal name or some sort of alias like that? Do you often see a combination of both where an individual has started an agency and then supports his personal brand in some capacity or vice versa? So Riley, I think you're right. Setting up a shop as a branded agency probably gives you more room for growth down the road because clients won't always expect or insist that you're the one doing the work. Remember Kai Davis from episode 59. Are you selling your time or are you selling results? If you focus on the results from the start, there's no expectation of you being the one to physically do the work. 
An example I point to a lot is Chris Schwab's ThinkMades from episode 295. To the end customer, he's largely anonymous and largely irrelevant. He's got a team of cleaners in place. He's got his support staff in place. And he doesn't need to have his face plastered all over the website. But if you're going down the content creation route, especially YouTube, it might need to be your face up front, especially at the beginning. I mean, people do business with people. And so you've got to figure out some way to build that trust. And normally that's going to come through one-on-one conversations, or at least at the beginning, it's going to have to be, it's going to have to be you at the front. Question 14 comes in from Neil. Neil's question is, when starting a new venture, how do you plan your day or activities that need to happen step by step? I find myself sitting down to build my website, maybe with an hour or two after work or on the weekends, and it just feels like there's so much to do or learn before I launch. Often, I'll spend my time going in circles reading about all the things that I need to do so much that nothing actually gets done. How do you lay out steps in a new business in small enough chunks so that they're not overwhelming? Well, Neil, thank you for the note. Thank you for tuning in. And I've totally been there and truthfully still there a lot of times. The only way to tackle this is just like eating an elephant, right? One bite at a time, which is such a weird phrase, by the way, like who eats elephants? So for big projects like building a website or writing a book, what I try and do is uh, break it down into as many micro steps as I can think of and then go after those. For example, instead of write book, which might sit on my to-do list for months, I might have instead outline chapter one or mind map the section about XYZ. That helps build some positive momentum. And from there, it's so much easier to write a first draft of that section than it would be starting from a blank screen. The other thing I'll try and do is figure out my top three priorities for the next day, the night before. This is part of my nightly shutdown routine. And maybe there's only time to tackle one, but at least you know what to work on instead of having this awkward ramp up time of trying to figure out what to prioritize, what to study on. There's always going to be more to learn. And I really applaud you for having that learning mindset, but also understand there's a balance to strike. Like I mentioned it a moment ago, It's this philosophy called just-in-time learning. Basically, not getting bogged down with everything you'll eventually need to know right out of the gate, but instead tackling and overcoming challenges as they come up. If you travel a lot for work or for vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com host. Once again, that's airbnb.com host. Question 15 comes in from Cheryl, and uh, she starts out with some flattery. She says, I'm very interested in uh, starting a podcast in the next six months. I really, really enjoy your interviewing style and think you have a lot to teach others about how to do engaging, informative, and helpful interviews. I would love to learn from you how you do that. For example, do you agree on talking points ahead of time? What's the prep prior to the interview? 
What's your approach, your philosophy of interviewing? What are your rules for interviewing? How far in advance do you schedule? Where do you find interviewees? What are the editing guidelines? I want to learn from you how you let your guests shine yet stay fully engaged in the process alongside of them. Is that something that you'd ever think about doing a training on? And if you've already done a training on that, where can I find it? So Cheryl, thank you for the note. Thank you for the kind words. Those are great questions. And truthfully, there's a lot of work that goes into each episode. I wish I could tell you that there was a shortcut. And I think if you go back and listen from the beginning, like starting in 2013, you'll hear that I'm not super comfortable behind the mic early on and that the show has definitely evolved and hopefully improved over time. So that's a part of it for sure, starting before you feel ready and just getting the reps in. Now, tactically, I do send guests talking points or proposed outline ahead of time, which they may or may not look at, but it's really more for me to come up with that story arc or outline for the show. So if you Google podcast production process, I think you're going to find my article that goes into depth on start to finish what I do to make each episode. But the broad strokes are starting with the hook or the big picture reason for tuning in. Like, what are people going to learn here? Putting myself in the place of the listener and trying to ask the right follow-up questions to get more details or clarify certain things. Editing the show to make the guests and sometimes myself sound better, sound great. As a podcast listener, I can tell which shows are well edited and which ones aren't. There's a place for both, for sure, but I appreciate the ones where the host is is respectful of my time. And through the magic of editing, we can usually salvage a conversation that was less than awesome live. Like we might record 65, 70 minutes and cut that down to 40 or 45 for the show. And how that works is I mark up a transcript with sections to cut and send that to the editor. And he does a good job of cleaning those up and other kind of like false starts and filler words just to make a tighter listening experience. Josh Elledge recommended a free transcription service called otter.ai, which is awesome. I've been using Temi, T-E-M-I, as another one, which is not free. So transitioning over to Otter being, being my frugal self. And to prep guests, I let them know, look, we're not live. If we screw something up, that's not a problem at all. We normally chat for a few minutes before recording just to get comfortable and check sound quality. But again, if you Google podcast production process, I think there's a Side Hustle Nation article that should pop up over there with a little more detail. And I think the other piece of this that really works in my favor is genuine curiosity. Like I'm still simply fascinated by all the different ways there are to make extra money. And that curiosity drives almost all the interviews. Like, wait, how did that work? Or wait, what was that tool again? I hadn't seriously considered doing a training on this topic, but we'll certainly give it some thought if that's something that would be uh, interesting to you to explore. Let me know. Maybe if I get enough demand for it, I can bump it up a few spots on the on the project list. Question 16 comes from Wes, kind of a related question. He says, congrats on the 10 million download milestone. That is amazing. I don't have a fraction of those numbers for my own podcast, so I'm diving into how I can grow it. Literally every guest says they love my style, my insightful questions, how easy the conversations flow. So what's missing? Did you do a lot of pay-per-click advertising or joint promotions to grow? Did you get a lot of traction from the custom handouts for each episode? So Wes, I wish I knew the exact secret. So a couple things to address. I haven't done any paid ads for the show. I did see some spikes, and I do I continue to see some spikes from guesting on other relevant podcasts. Some of the most notable ones 
that made a blip on the chart were Entrepreneurs on Fire, Mad Scientist, Bigger Pockets Money, Choose FI, Afford Anything, Don't Keep Your Day Job. But interestingly, the only one of those that I proactively pitched to get on was EO Fire, and that was back in early 2015. You mentioned the episode giveaways or handouts. So starting to do the episode-specific lead magnets in 2014 definitely helped because those gave me a way to communicate with the perhaps infrequent listeners and attempt to convince them to keep tuning in more. And it gave them something in their inbox that was an easy thing to forward to a friend if they thought, hey, this sounds interesting, this sounds helpful. It's all about trying to climb that listener pyramid, right? From stranger to a listener to subscriber to fan. And that goes for podcasts, that goes for blogs, YouTube channels, Instagram accounts, whatever medium you're going after, trying to climb that pyramid. Stranger to listener to subscriber to fan. The interesting thing is, maybe interesting to you, interesting to me, is it kind of shifted away from doing those PDF highlight reels as often today. And for full disclosure, the email list growth has suffered because of it. But I've made that shift in favor of a more SEO-focused strategy for a lot of the newer episodes. For example, if you Google start a junk hauling business, the show notes page from my interview with Brian Scudamore from 1-800-GOT-JUNK ranks really well, at least at the time of this recording. That post has 1,500 words and, well, it doesn't get a ton of traffic, 600 visits over the last 30 days. It probably wouldn't get as much or any organic love if the show notes page only had 300 words, like many of the PDF highlight reel episodes do. One other thing that I think works in my favor is the big list of side hustle ideas. That's sidehustlenation.com slash ideas. That's my most popular page and generates a lot of traffic from Google. And on that page, I spider people into and reference a bunch of different interviews on the podcast. So that could be one consistent source of new listenership. And in fact, now that I'm thinking about it, there are probably a handful of other pages that work similarly, kind of drawing in fresh visitors, fresh traffic from Google, and hopefully converting a few of those into regular listeners. The best performing shows for me, and I I think the ones that attribute most to word of mouth, are usually the simple, relatable, repeatable, tactical episodes that get people saying, well, shoot, I could do that. So that's my job in every interview is to find those elements. But this question is probably another one that would be good to turn around and ask you, the person who's listening right now, how did you discover the show? Was it word of mouth? Was it through some Google search? Did it just show up in your app somehow? I would love to know. Tweet me up at nloper or leave a comment on this episode, sidehustlenation.com slash Q&A9. Question 17 is from Gayla. She says, the DuckDuckGo add-on for Firefox wrecks all my Amazon links that use an image. I think this is a pretty big deal if privacy blockers are in fact going to kill affiliate links, and I would love to know more about what's going on and what to expect. So Gayla, it is super frustrating knowing that some people are going to have a less than optimal experience on your site. But more importantly, I would love to see you focus on the vast, vast majority of internet users who've never heard of DuckDuckGo and go out and serve them as best you can. There are plenty of people making boatloads of money with Amazon Associates and other affiliate programs. And I've got to imagine if I'm an internet user with this extension installed, and if website after website after website that I visit looks all messed up with broken images, I might have to turn around and reevaluate things a little bit and ask if the promised benefits outweigh that poor 
user experience. Question 19 comes from Tyson. He says, what was the biggest challenge in making your course? So this is in reference to the Start My Side Hustle course, startmysidehustle.com, if you want to go check it out. A couple big challenges for me were, number one, narrowing down the scope, and then number two, coming up with a launch plan. I expended what felt like a lot of brain power on those two things. Coming up with a curriculum of what works around a specific side hustle I thought would be best for people just starting out. Remember, that was the stated goal, start my side hustle, go from no ideas to your first income, and then figuring out a way to launch it in a way that made sense and that I felt good about. I was reading a lot of course launch case studies and trying to pull out the bits and pieces that I liked and ultimately put together a quick email series to launch it, which converted horribly. I'll definitely be doing a full case study and write-up on my own blog for kind of the beginning to end journey of creating this thing through the Teachable Creators Challenge. So, so stay tuned for that. We're on the home stretch here. Question 19 comes from Tanya. She says, you recently mentioned that adding tables of contents to your posts was a quick SEO win, basically taking up a little more screen real estate with your Google results. Any other SEO tactics that are working well for you at the moment? So Tanya, yes, I am seeing some positive results from the table of contents, which I think is helpful both for Google and from a usability standpoint, allowing readers to jump straight to the section of the article they care most about. I'm sure there are others, but I'm just using a free plugin called Easy Table of Contents, which delivered what it promised. As far as other SEO tactics that are working well at the moment, one that I'm paying attention to is internal linking. That means linking to other posts on your own site. It's easy to do as you're writing new content to link back to your older archive posts that are relevant, but it's harder to remember to go back and update those old posts with links to that article that you just published. But when you have a brand new article, it's got zero links. So I've been testing this with a few posts that I really want to rank, adding several internal links to them, like at least five, but as many as 20 in some cases. And for most of those, I have seen an improvement in the rankings. So when I hit publish on something new, I've actually added this to my process, to my publishing checklist to go back through relevant archive content and add internal links to that new post. And here we are with question 20. This actually came in from multiple people who asked, hey, did you ever end up making a hire for that executive assistant slash content manager position you posted over the summer? And sadly, I did not. This was something I didn't pull the trigger on, despite a number of very well-qualified candidates, totally a case of, you know, it's not you, it's me. So I'm kind of going back to the drawing board on what I could really use the most help with and envisioning what that position might look like. Obviously, I would want any hire I make to simplify life rather than adding an extra layer of complexity and really allow for the acceleration of certain projects. That's probably been the most frustrating thing about this process and this year in general. It just feels like kind of like stuck in molasses, like I'm moving painfully slow at times. And nothing against slow. Business is great, but the challenge that I run up against is there's so much more that I want to do. Not just because I think I can make more money, but because I think these projects would genuinely be fun, interesting, helpful projects to build. So no, no executive assistant yet, and I'll make that my homework going into the new year, to really define where a new team member can make the biggest impact and then see who might be the best fit for that role. 
Once again, notes for this episode and links to all the resources mentioned are over at sidehustlenation.com slash Q&A9. Keep those questions coming. Big thank you to everybody who submitted questions for this round. And that's it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen. And I'll catch you in the next edition of The Side Hustle Show, where we're exploring a popular buy buttons platform and the new ways you can start earning passive income there. I'll see you then. Hustle on.